everybody. Welcome to This Week in Repair Radio. I'm your host, Kyle Weens. And I'm Kelsey Weber. And we are very excited to have two super special guests here with us today. David Pogue is in studio. He is one of the preeminent technology journalists. Uh, he worked for Macworld back in the day. He's written the Missing Manual series. Now he's a host with CBS News. And we're going to be talking with him about technology and culture and progress and what that means for our society. And we'll also get a right to repair update from Amanda LaGrange. She's the CEO of Tech Dump, an electronics recycler in Minnesota. Amanda has been an absolute leader in activism and advocacy, uh, getting the right to repair legislation. We've been introduced four or five years in a row now, and we're getting really close. So tune in and we'll get things started. Hey, so uh, this is Kyle I Fix It back with Repair Radio and very excited to have a special guest today. David Pogue has joined us. I have. So I have been a big fan of yours for a long time. Uh, you are, I mean, one of the godfathers of Mac journalism. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm enjoying this podcast already. All the way back in the day. So I grew up reading Macworld Magazine. Oh, yeah. And uh, I mean, and so, I mean, Jason Snell and David Pogue and uh, Dan Moran and all you guys, like back in the day, I mean, as I have been an Apple guy since the underdog days, since the beginning. And you were too. Like, yeah, for sure. What was your first Mac? Uh, I got a, uh, in fact, this is what got me into technology in the first place. I was a music major in college, and Apple had this genius program where they were selling Macs to college students at half price. Okay. And the reason that's genius is because that then you get hooked right. on one platform, and you'd stay with it the rest of your life, which is what happened to me. So I was about to graduate, and I'm like, mm, am I ever going to get a computer? I'd never had a computer. Um, I'm like, I better take advantage of this deal. So it was a Mac the original Mac. The original, the 128 128K, Mac. yep, yep. I heard people were doing RAM upgrades on those I things. did a RAM upgrade on that thing. So, yeah, I moved to New York to, uh, I was a Broadway conductor in my original career. I was okay. a musician. And uh, I still remember I got this, I found this guy who would bring a one megabyte chip to you. One megabyte of RAM. Um, and he met me in the lobby of my building. He was literally wearing a trench coat. It was $400. <laughs> and it was like, all right, all right, just take it, man. Just take it. Like, That's like it was, crazy. It was like a drug deal. And this is those weren't available on the open market? No, no. Well, not from Apple. Not this from... Is, yeah, this is a third party guy. the world of surreptitious upgrades. <laughs> exactly. Has yeah. not stopped. And, and now, I mean, in Shenzhen, they're doing uh, flash memory upgrades on iPhones where they're desoldering... The, the NAND flash and they'll so if you have a 64 gig iPhone people people here say can you upgrade it and I say no you can't but in Shenzhen you can't <laughs> oh my gosh have you been uh, yeah and I mean the, the tooling that they use I mean they use it's a lot of the same machinery that, that they make the phones with so it's like a BGA rework machine for the ball grid array chips to desolder and solder on the processor oh wow <laughs> you can I mean you can buy enough parts like on the markets in Washington Bay to build an iPhone if you want um, and I'm talking not – I'm talking like you buy a PCB and you buy you know individual capacitors and you solder all of them onto the, the board. Wow. And make a, what if you'd save money in the end? Um, uh, it, it, maybe. Um, it, the, the part that you cannot buy that has to come from an iPhone is the A10 processor. Oh, of course. Of course. So that's the – uh, so, your your in your career, you've done everything from from being a musical conductor to MacWorld columnist, and now you're doing broadcast media. You've been an author of of all the missing manual books in between. What are, have you enjoyed? Kind of that 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 constant evolution, or do you, so you look back, you're like, man, if I could just go work at MacWorld again, that would be so much simpler. <laughs> I, I do feel like I wasted ten years doing the musical theater thing. I do. I mean, I re I really was going to be the next great Broadway conductor composer. I mean, my, my goal was to write shows. 
and I wrote a show a year in college. I mean, all the way back to middle school, I was writing musicals. Um, and then, like, I got to New York to, to the Broadway thing, and I found out that it's, you very know, competitive. very competitive. Yeah, and, and no one's going to invest $20 million on a total unknown. Right. You know, so it was all the old guard. It was Andrew Lloyd Webber and Stephen Sondheim, all these famous composers. Um, and they were doing a lot of revivals. So I, I kind of spun my wheels for 10 years writing shows, staging readings, making recordings, sending scripts around to producers. And How were you paying for rent while you are doing this? Uh, I was playing piano for voice lessons. Okay. And here's where it gets relevant. I was the office manager for the New York Mac Users Group. Okay. So it was a big... This is a paid position? This is a $10 an hour. <laughs> okay. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah, I got our mail. I paid our bills, uh, managed the schedule, answered all the, all the correspondence. But that's actually, you know, so there I was with my newly upgraded <laughs> one megabyte Mac, homemade fat Mac, and uh, and working for the user group. And the, the connection, a lot of people want to know, how do you get from being, you know, a conductor to a tech guy and the connection is that there was this music software that's still around today called finale it's kind of like uh, sheet music software kind of like the yeah, microsoft word right. sheet music. and i wanted it so badly but it was a thousand dollars back then for a floppy disk and um so the editor of our newsletter hilariously called the mac street journal um said you know what you should do you should write to the company and tell them you're a reviewer okay and they'll send you a free copy and, and you did that? I work. did that. Like, it's that easy? And I wrote a review, you know. Totally. That's the gateway drug into tech journalism. That was it. You write your first it. review. Yep. Uh, and, I mean, Macworld Magazine was such a force back in the day. And, and, the, and the Macworld Expos, you know. Yeah. And, and, and Steve Jobs would get up at Macworld Expo, and that was the introduction of the next big thing. I went to every one of those. And, and Macworld Boston. Yep, twice a year. Yeah. Uh, so I, I mean, that was that was really. I mean, for me, I was in high school, and I'm kind of watching the world and saying, like, what do I want to be when I grow up? And and seeing Apple kind of move from being you know this fringe niche where we were always super defensive. Yeah, that's world, right. That's and we've right. got our performers, and we're saying Apple is strong in education, <laughs> even though we don't have a place in business. It's still relevant. That's right. Oh man, all those same arguments. Yeah. And. And fast forward 30 years. Yeah, now they're the 800-pound gorilla. They're the 800-pound gorilla. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's interesting. As, as you went through, like you started more on the user side and training people, and you started writing the Missing Manual series and you know, became a best-selling author in that regard. Why was the manual missing? Well, so that goes like this. So first, uh, I started writing the Dummies books. Okay. I wrote Max for Dummies, yeah. the iMac for Dummies, more Max for Dummies, Max for Teachers. I wrote seven of the Dummies books. Um, and that came about because, actually, this is an interesting story. Now there's probably 1,800 different topics in Dummies, the Dummies okay. series. But at the time, there was only one. It was never supposed to be a series. It was one book. It was DOS for Dummies. Okay. Dan Gookin, genius. <laughs> And the way he pulled off that book is he took an us versus them stance, which perpetuates to this day in yeah. you, I think, um, <laughs> which is to say, he said, you're not stupid if you don't understand your computer. They want you to feel stupid. The, the intelligentsia of geeks. Um, and so he wrote this book saying, they call it RAM, but that's just to intimidate you. It's just memory. You know, like you would yeah, say stuff like right. that. And it was funny and it was yellow. And, you know, the, the major bookstores, Barnes & Noble, they wouldn't stock 
DOS for Dummies because they said, we're not going to stock a book that insults the reader. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. And so it was all independent bookstores and it became a mega, mega hit. Millions and millions of copies. Right. And then they thought, okay, let's do one more. Let's do a companion book called Max for Dummies. Okay. And that's where I came in. I was writing for Macworld. Yeah. And they called the editor and said, it's a sister company, IDG Books. IDG, IDG, right. Yeah. And they said, uh, you know, do you have anyone who can write funny? And so they recommended me. And so I did that one. And Was Apple okay with Max for Dummies? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I never had yeah. any, any feedback. Um, although I did hear... So, so I, I, I exhausted my expertise. I did uh, magic for dummies, magic tricks, mm-hmm. uh, opera for dummies, not the browser, um, the art form, uh, classical music for dummies. And then I was kind of like out of expertise. So I, what was I going to do? I started my own series to compete with them. And this is where the missing manual idea came from. So that was 1999. Um, I was at one of the Macworld Expos, still trying to think of what the concept would be. And I'm like, nobody gives you manuals anymore. Nobody, the user manual. I, when did the user manual die? Um, this- I think then, late 90s. Yeah. 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 And, and it was explained to me why. Um, it was because, A, the research says nobody looks at them. Mm-hmm. B, this is a big one. As soon as they're done with software, done writing it and debugging it, they want to ship it. Mm-hmm. But printing and binding a manual takes another six weeks okay they don't want to just sit so on a profit making and it also you know the software you got screenshots the software could change yes between. huge yeah. problem huge right. problem for me to this day i mean i have to redo those damn books every single year you know every year there's a new windows right. book a new macbook a new iphone book those right. are the ones i still do but anyway so i did hear at one point that uh in the early 2000s there was some meeting at apple where they're like okay now what about the documentation and somebody literally said Let's just let Pogue do it. (laughs) Like they knew I would write a missing manual about it. And so so I feel like there's some parallel arc with us then because we come in and we're writing the missing service manual. (laughs) Yes, there is. And I don't know if at some point Apple has said like, why are we bothering writing the service manual? Because I fix it's going to do it anyway. Yeah, I'm sure they've had that conversation. So we've had these crazy moments in our service manuals where we miss something that ends up being important. Uh, with the with the 15 inch MacBook Pros, there is a the the Wi-Fi card. It turns out you can put the Wi-Fi card in upside down. Oh, uh, it's 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 you know, it mirror image. And if you put it in upside down, it fries the computer. Oh, nice. Um, and we didn't know that because we never did that. Hmm? We never screwed up and did it upside down. I'm curious if you've had any moments like that where. There's things that you just didn't know that you fundamentally missed that misled people. Um, you know, nothing serious. Of course, there's always mistakes and typos. Uh, try as we might. Um, the nice thing about O'Reilly, who published the missing manuals, is that they they believed in publishing small batches of computer books. So they were constantly pinging me and saying, we're reprinting, we're reprinting, we're reprinting. And every one of those was an opportunity for me to fix things. Um, I'll tell you what, what I did do at one point, though. Um, the other book I did uh, on the Mac was a huge 1,600-page monster called Mac Secrets. Mac yes, Road I Mac remember Secrets. that. Yeah. <laughs> that seems like that would be more your style. It's sure. much more advanced. All the and, hidden and the yeah, power keys. Yeah, exactly. And it drove me crazy that competitive books would take the cool tips and tricks that my co-author and Yale roommate Joe Shore had come up with and discovered – um, and they were ripping us off, and they were printing it in their own tips and tricks books. So one year, I think this is the first time I've ever revealed this to the public. One year, Joe and I put in a bogus tip. It was a sidebar, and it was about how the secret, you know, key combination will bring up the rabbit. You know, and there was no rabbit. <laughs> was there no was rabbit. no single. T- but we, and it was just complicated enough 
that the payoff wasn't enough that a reader would actually try it. Okay. It was more like, huh, how funny. Yeah. Turn the page, Turn the page. right? Okay. And sure enough, they, they it appeared it. in other books, even though it was completely baloney. You'd think if you're going to knock somebody off, you would at least go through the process of like replicating You it. would think. Yeah. So we planted sort of a, a, a copycat virus in our book. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, so speaking of viruses, you've written some other books. And I, I, I have uh, one of the, the very first fiction <gasps> books that oh, I ever read. Are you kidding me? So I have a copy of this. Is, this is Hard Drive. <laughs> this is a, a thrilling tale of a computer virus destroying the files on a single term. 1993. Okay, so this... I remember reading this in high school, uh, and it was the first cyber thriller I ever read. It, wow. it may be one of the first cyber thrillers ever. Wow. I mean, this yeah, came in 1993, this around the same time Neil Stevenson published Snow Crash. Mm-hmm. It was mm-hmm. right around there. Yeah. And you were a little bit less fanciful in this. I yeah. This is a more realistic cyber attack. And the hilarious thing is that, <laughs> I mean, first of all, 1990, I mean, I was in my 20s. You know, there's like these phrases in there that are hilarious say like there in the corner was the seething throbbing power of a mac se you know like oh my god things that did not age well exactly where where neil stevenson has a dragon and maybe the dragon has aged better (laughs) but the the story concerns this fanciful product that that didn't exist in 1993 which is speech recognition software and it was going to change the world and i was right about that so we have Siri. Eventually, and, but it took a long time. I mean, we had Dragon Dictation through the 90s. It never really worked. Yep, it's really yep. only been the last, what, four or five years that yep. it's finally become maybe something that you could... Yeah, I, I do. I use Naturally Speaking. I For a while in the late 90s, I had tenosynovitis, tenosynovitis which is a, a wrist ailment, kind of like carpal tunnel. Um, and so I couldn't type. And so, so the hand doctor said, you should stop using your hands. I'm like, dude, I have two careers. I play the piano and I type at the computer. You got any other suggestions? Um, anyway, so uh, the original Mac version of that software was Power Secretary. $2,500 I spent for that software. And in those days, you had to separate words. You had to speak like that. And so my girlfriend would come home and I'd be like, hi, honey, how was work? Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. You know, like, um, but anyway, yeah, so I can't believe you have a copy of this. So, so you write the book using the voice dictation software? I did not. And here we've got you explaining cryptography. <laughs> this is this is a number transposition cipher. So fantastic. Yeah, and, and you've got your email. I wonder, like, they, they also almost this is around the same time the Electronic Frontier Foundation started. Yeah. The idea of a computer virus was new and novel and terrifying. That's right. That's right. And, of course, all of us look at this and, like, yeah, like, yes, I was on that porn site, and here we are. I mean, I had no idea what I was doing. I had never written any fiction of any kind before. And um, I had worked this summer for the... Eventually, I became friends with the people who made that music software, that finale software. And I wound up writing their manuals for versions two and three. I wrote the the new manuals. The original manuals were were terrible. Um, And so I spent a summer working in this software company um, in Minnesota. And that's how I learned what it's like inside a software company. So this is set inside a software company. Um, and uh, and it wound up being a New York Times notable book of the year. So, who the <laughs> hell knew? You know, that's that's fantastic. Well, so we've become obsessive about manuals. I mean, through, just through the course of doing it, right? And I mm-hmm. ended up we wrote software to write our manuals. Uh, we actually spun off that software. We have a software company, Dazuki, that sells our technical documentation software that runs iFixit to oh. manufacturers so that they can write write manuals. That's like how that. O'Reilly started. You know. Was, was writing writing documentation for uh, well for for things that didn't have it. 
And then, and then this, yeah, I mean, that makes perfect sense. And they've got the, the animals that yeah. you know, none of us have. Yeah, that's yeah. Right. Maybe the Missing Manual series needs mascots. Yes, maybe. <laughs> I did some animal books. I did Palm Pilot, The Ultimate Guide. Okay. Flying Squirrel on yeah. the cover. Yeah. We, we've helped them with a number of their books, but we've never written our own. Oh, um, good outfit. So do you ever like, look back and say, well, maybe you should have gotten stuck with fiction? No. <laughs> how, how, how did this do for you financially? Was this a... Um, you know, it was, uh, it was not anything you could live on. Yeah. But, but one really cool thing is that um, I believe it was La Cie, or some Some hard drive company um, thought it would be cool to bundle this book called Hard Drive with every hard drive they sold. <laughs> so they ordered 15,000 wow. copies from the publisher. That's pretty good. Yeah, it was it was pretty good. So that was a that was a lucky stroke. Um, that, that'll trigger another print run. Yeah, exactly. There you go. So, yeah, no. I and then I I, I wrote another novel uh, uh, three or four years ago for for middle schoolers called Abby Carnelia's One and Only Magical Power, but that was my that was that only was the second time I've ever been back. And then fiction. you're stuck with fiction or with nonfiction manuals, and now you're doing news. Yeah. So I'm curious as you look at the arc of technology in history, and I mean every time you have to write a new missing manual, there's another operating system that we have to learn, and you have this pace of innovation, and you've kind of specialized in explaining those innovations to the everyman. Precisely. Okay. How does the everyman keep up? Oh, man. You know, people, I give a lot of talks and people always ask me that. Um, and, you know, for me, it's a full-time job keeping up. And even I can't, you know. So it's, it's, it's more or less hopeless. I used to say, read my column. <laughs> but I don't write the, that right. New York Times column anymore. I write a different, uh, a different column from the Times. Um, it's, you just can't. I mean, you have to, you know, visit all the websites and subscribe to all the magazines and... Go to the conferences and right. no, nobody outside the business is going to do that. So the, the manufacturers are on this treadmill where they're releasing new gizmos all the time. And they have to because that's their, their profit that's model, That's the right? business model, yeah. And so if they don't release a new iPhone every year, the investors are going to get upset. Yep. Uh, to what extent have we become culpable as part of that kind of system of... This, this is a, a, a hot question for you. This taps into that whole thing about... How are you defined by your phone? Something I've thought about and studied a lot about. Whenever I would review a new iPhone or a new Samsung phone, um, I, I couldn't do right. Right? If I if I said it's a good phone, then the other camp would eviscerate me. If I said it had problems, then that camp would eviscerate me. Right. And I became aware that people literally define their self worth mm-hmm. by the brand they buy. Right. Which is weird and doesn't happen that way with breakfast cereals or, right. I mean, cars maybe a little bit, but but not so much. Right. It's it's really just phones. It's it's yeah. really odd. So we are culpable, but it's because we are psychological beings, and it's the same. It's the same kind of thing how we identify with sports teams. I would say we're not the ones playing the football game. What are, we just happen to live in that city, so right. therefore we want them to win, and you're an idiot because you support the other team. It's, it's a weird identification thing that happens uh, t- to support our self-worth. Um, and there's status. I mean, fashion has always been that way, right? Where yeah, it's, exactly. It's a status symbol that you're showing off. That's right. What, what, I read your, your most recent New York Times column where you were giving advice to parents on planes. <laughs> and in, in that column, one, uh, the, the, it seems like the consistent advice everybody was giving them was, well, have some new shiny thing to show the kid every 30 minutes. That's right. right. Have some new toy, and, and they're going to get distracted by the next thing, and that will get you through a 12-hour flight. Like, That's right. So that feels like our world of technology to some extent. Yeah, it really does. Are we? Is this fundamental to human psychology that we have to have a new thing every thirty minutes, or is this something that we are training ourselves in from an early age? I mean, 
Novelty is addictive. I mean, novelty is, um, especially in these phones, I mean, we could talk about this for hours, but the, in the bigger picture, um, change in general is terrifying. This is why we don't do anything about climate change or you know, any of the other things that are wrong. This is why we don't do anything about repairing our phones. I mean, this resistance to change is everywhere because change is frightening, right? So when it's a change that we control, like we decide to get a new phone, that is a change that is in our control rather than out of our control. So it, it feels good. I don't know if you've ever studied depression, but one of the characteristics of depression is it is the feeling that you can't do anything about your situation. Um, and as soon as you do little things, like I'm going to join a book club, some I'm going to... Yeah, some agency. That's exactly right. Then you start to feel better, even if it's the tiniest things. And I, I feel like that's why we go see horror movies, by the way. Um, yes, they are terrifying, but it was our decision to go. We can leave at any time. Controlling the change, controlling the fear is within our control. Interesting. And when we do that, it's more handleable. So as we are inflicting new technology upon ourselves, is that, I mean, is, is, it, is, that, is there some, like, internal, you know, chemical process where the new thing, is, like, we're, we're, we're kind of forcing ourselves on change. There's that kind of dopamine rush from... I was just going to say. Opening the new thing. It's what a dopamine this? spurt, for sure. It's, it's Christmas morning. It's your birthday. So Marie Kondo is sweeping the world. Uh, and uh, I mean, it is absolutely fascinating to see. Uh, she talks about like settle in on a few things that you have that spark joy, and try to purge everything else. What is it about our culture that has brought like the, just this deluge of stuff? We seem to constantly be collecting all this stuff. Yeah, it's it's related. You know, it's the consumer society. It's uh, we're only now sort of starting to realize the problems with this basis of economy, this basis of psychology. Um, it is true, and I'm, I'm thrilled that there is now a movement to get rid of stuff. <laughs> We've had three garage. I have three kids. Two of them are now out of the house, so we're slowly purging. purging. we had three garage sales in three years, and man, it is even more satisfying to get rid of stuff than to right. get stuff, let me tell you. Well, and I think this is, as we've gone from, I mean, I'm just looking at the arc of, of history over the last 75 years, and like scarcity has been imposed on human society. All the way up until the 1950s, mm. there was always some reason, like, there just wasn't enough. I mean, even clothing was incredibly expensive because it was so time-consuming to make. Yeah. And after we came out of World War II, and, and now, you know, then you had plastic, and it became very inexpensive to make things. And so, like, the, the, last, the loss of scarcity of physical objects has then led to the ballooning of all of the stuff that we have. Right. Uh, and I, I'm constantly asking, like, how can we go back to a world where we have less? And it, it, it's going to take self-control now, right? Because scarcity is not imposing that control on us. Right, right. I, you know, I've been thinking so much about this because um, I've just signed a book deal with Simon Schuster to write a book uh, that is related to climate change. And if you really look at the, the projections for what's going to happen, uh, we're talking about obviously losing livable area. Mm-hmm. Um, Manhattan's going to be underwater? Partly, yeah. All the coastal cities will lose land area. So in effect, and then, you know, we think about the United States because we're Americans, but in other countries like Bangladesh is, you know, they're, they're, the Netherlands are below sea level. The whole right. country is below sea level. Like there's some countries that are going to be totally drowned. 
Um, and in effect, what this will do, and of course, it'll change the growing seasons. It will change where you can grow crops because uh, climate change. Will, I, I hear the better term is actually climate chaos because everything affects everything else. Right. Um, and so everyone's like, oh, it's, it's a cold winter. That's not global warming. Well, you idiot. That's Increased the point. Increased turbulence. Right. Increased intensity of everything. So more floods followed by more droughts. Which is sort of counterintuitive. Wait, I thought it's going to be flooding. Well, it's going to be flooding Anders. Anyway, bottom line, bottom line is fewer areas where you can grow food, fewer areas where you can live. It's going to push people into a smaller area on a global scale. And we are really going to, we're going to have to do with fewer objects in our lives. There won't be the ability to keep producing and to keep right. buying and to keep owning. Yeah. Priorities will have to shift. Well, the carbon impact of the things that we manufacture, you know, it's 500 pounds of CO2 per iPhone manufactured oh. up front. So you think about it, you're like, it's, this, it's, it's so lightweight, right? Well, it's 500 pounds of CO2 to get this. I'm going back there. to my princess rotary yeah. phone. Yeah. Well, and that's where I wonder to what extent we in the media are a little bit culpable of assisting these manufacturers to right, sell these objects to people. We're all, we're all on, this, on this constant needing more and more and more. Right. And I mean, there's some mild good news, which is that I've always theorized that any new invention uh, goes through a, a rapid upgrade cycle at the beginning of the invention's life um, and then settles down into its ultimate incarnation and then you don't right. rebuy it every day. Yeah, but the manufacturers got smart this time and built a death clock into them. I know. <laughs> the batteries know. were out and then you have to get a new one. Yeah, well, you're, you're doing something about that. But <laughs> well, like, we'll you, don't, you don't buy a new refrigerator every other right. year, right? Because it is what it is. It's there. And now people are not buying a new phone every two years. People it's, are getting by like with it's, three. It's, it's going up, yeah. 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 Well, I, I, we are going to uh, shift the conversation and bring in a friend of, uh, of iFixit and a friend of the community um, uh, who is running a recycler in Minnesota who's dealing with all these. And so she is the one who gets all of our stuff when we're done with it. Um, so I just want to say thank you very much for coming. It's been, it's been awesome to, uh, to you know, get to show you around iFixit a little bit because I think we've been in revolving orbits. We you've have. Been writing, you've been writing the missing manual. We've been writing the missing service manual. <laughs> We have. Well, great to great to hang out with you and, and to meet you finally. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. Appreciate it. Okay, we're going to shift over, and we have Amanda Lagrange on the line. Amanda runs Tech Dump in uh, in the the great state of Minnesota, and uh, I got to visit Tech Dump a few years ago, and was was incredibly impressed by her operation and the kind of uh, yeah, innovation that they're bringing to all of your old stuff. So, Amanda, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. Yeah. So I'll, uh, let me give you my kind of bird's eye view of Tech Dump, and then you can tell me how accurate this is. Uh, <laughs> okay. So everybody all around the, the Twin Cities area, when they're done with their stuff, they donate it somewhere, and then it goes into a big warehouse. And Amanda has these teams of uh, incredibly smart people that are like sifting through things, trying to figure out what is the stuff that is going to get shredded, and what is the stuff that maybe we can fix and resell. Is that a fair summary? That's a wonderful summary. So g give me an idea, what kind of volume of material do you process? Yeah, so last year we celebrated our 25 millionth pound process since oh our founding. Gosh. Um, so yeah, if we see a few electronics. And one of the other pieces that's really unique to our model is that beyond our environmental mission, we're also focused on work readiness training. So we're working with individuals that have come out of incarceration or in recovery um, from addiction. And so there's just amazing skills that can be learned within this wonderful world of recycling and refurbishing. 
So give, give me a, a sense. And uh, when I was in your facility, I'm wandering around. I saw, I mean, I'm seeing laptops. I'm seeing servers. What kind of material are you getting in there? Our easiest explanation is it's anything with a cord, cable, or battery that's not a home appliance. Um, and so with that, obviously, comes things that we think of like computers. Uh, lately, as we get more and more into the Internet of Things, we're seeing kids' toys that look like stuffed animals. And lo and behold, there's a computer in that belly. And so, thankfully, that mom chose to come and recycle it with us. So it's it's amazing the variety, but um, it feels like every day there's something that comes in that you're like, huh, haven't seen that before. Um, and as we'll talk about, I know, but it makes repairing these things really difficult when you see literally thousands of different electronics every day. And yeah. all that weight was from mostly compact, like smaller electronics, because you're not including all of these massive home appliances, all these smart fridges and all this other stuff. So this just shows where the weight does right. come from. It comes yeah, from Yeah, what's the biggest stuff. thing you would ever get? Uh, I mean, rear projection TVs okay. are one thing that come to mind. So yeah. the behemoth, gigantic things that are normally in somebody's right. basement, and then they're moving, yeah. and they <laughs> and finally are getting rid of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's probably the largest thing I can think of. And those okay. can weigh a couple hundred pounds. So as I was talking with David, we're kind of you know, thinking a little bit about society and how we have ended up with, with, with all this stuff in our lives. As someone who's seeing sort of the cleanup, what's your take on, on the amount of things that people have nowadays? <laughs> um, well, should I show you my iPhone 5S that I'm still using? Hey, nice. My, nice. my team feels very embarrassed by but I just, it still works okay. It's a great phone. So. Exactly. It's There's just so much stuff. And I think, too, um, it's been a few years, thankfully, since this deal was about. But uh, for a long time, you got a free printer when you bought a computer. And people would come and drop off our recycling and bring the printer still brand new in the box with this, like, look of shame of, like, oh, dear, please don't shame me for the fact I never opened this. Um, so the... The consumption is just insane, but a lot of it came from us as consumers, but a lot of it also came from just the system that was built. And it's the same system that you're just speaking on, and that we just constantly knew, need that latest and greatest piece of technology. Um, the other piece that I think has really been um, something that I feel like I see from my seat that maybe the rest of the community doesn't, is how emotionally attached we get to our electronics. Mm. And so because of that attachment, we hold on to things for a lot longer than we would ever use them. Um, so yeah. actually last year, I finally recycled a MacBook that I had had during college. Like, why could I not recycle it earlier? There was nothing left on it data-wise, but all I could think of was, like, beautiful college memories and my youth and all of it. And, right. like, every day I come to Tech Dump, clearly it's not a convenience thing. I could have recycled it, but right. it's just this hard piece around letting go of these devices that have become such a part of our everyday life. Right. Well, and that's something that we try to get the message out there. Like sometimes the most environmentally friendly thing that you can do is to give away or sell the stuff that you already have and do it aggressively soon while it still has value right. and somebody else can use it. So let's say, let's say we were to give a relatively new MacBook to Tech Dump. What would happen? Yeah, it would come into our doors and go to our reused technician team, which now is a group of about a 25 amazing humans. Uh, they'll work on that technology, and they'll go through a process of testing, data wiping, and then preparing it for sale. Uh, sometimes that's through online channels. Sometimes it's through our retail store, which is now known as Tech Discounts. Uh, go figure. People didn't want to shop for electronics at a place called Tech Dump. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Tech Discounts. But 
Um, it's amazing to see that often it's a small business owner that's adding employees to their headcount, or maybe it's a kid that has technology in the classroom, but their parents at home don't want them to use their brand new computer that they bought somewhere else, but they're okay buying refurbished. Uh, so there's just, there's amazing technology that we can get back out into the community for the people that don't want brand new. And trust me, there are plenty of people that will still keep buying brand new from Apple or whatever manufacturer, uh, but there's room for both markets. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of a cultural shift that needs to happen in the way that we think about secondhand goods. You know, going back to the Marie Kondo stuff, you know, everybody goes, there's lots of clothing swaps. I run one in our community. Very but, successful clothing swap. Yeah, it's going really well. Marie Kondo was a huge help to that for the last one. <laughs> but changing people's perspectives on, you know, used products. You know, we don't mind buying a used car. We don't mind clothing swapping with our girlfriends or whatever. But for some reason, like a used electronics or a refurbished device, I, I hear a lot of people saying, you know, it just doesn't work as well. I don't really know but that's untrue it's not any um anywhere any it's just as good as something that you would buy new and it saves you a lot of money but i think just needing to change people's perspective making it more um available just more because like when you walk into a goodwill and you go to the electronics section it's a little scary (laughs) there's like you just you don't know if you're going to walk out with something that turns on but i think you know if you've got something that's coming out of recycling facility with people that are experienced in um refurbishing these things and having a storefront for people in the community, every community needs one of those because there are enough electronics to put, <laughs> you know, use electronics to put out there. No. Certainly. And it's part of why we now have a one-year warranty in our retail store because we want to break down this misconception that it's not quality. The stuff is quality. And in some cases, our QA process might even be more thorough than a manufacturer's at the point of building something new. Uh, but it is definitely that that brain shift, that mind shift within our community. But I have found that once someone saves that much money buying secondhand on electronics, um, that it's hard for them to go back to buying new. So there's hope. Definitely. Let's let's switch to talking about right to repair for a little bit. Uh, Amanda, you've been engaged in right to repair in Minnesota since the very beginning. Uh, Tell us what your, why are you involved? Yeah, well, those wonderful members of my crew that are working on uh, refurbishing laptops or flat panel TVs or desktops or whatever the item are, item is, right now are, they're harvesting parts from other items that have come in, um, which is really difficult to scale. It involves having just the right part already in-house. Right. You don't, maybe it's available on eBay, maybe it's available for my fix-it, but it's really limiting the amount of stuff we can repair. Last year, our flat panel TV weight that came in for recycling was up 60%. It's clear that this stuff was not built to last, but often our team has a difficult time repairing those flat panel TVs because the cost of the parts is prohibitive or there's not the manual that we need to be able to repair it. So really it's about our ability to keep scaling our organization, which for us has both that environmental mission and also the job training side, and then getting that affordable technology back into our community is something that is really important. So availability of parts and resources impacts you the same way as it does a lot of the repair techs that we have on the show. So it seems like the same thing, but how do you, yeah, see right to repair impacting just your business as a whole? Because you're not the average consumer or just the, um, you know, the repair pro with a shop. How does it, how's it going to impact your operations, you know, if and when it passes? Yeah. The ability for our team to go source those parts. So I think last week I was, 
dealing with a car issue and I could go to my favorite independent repair shop. Thank you, Dale Festy in Hopkins, Minnesota. <laughs> and they could get the part that they needed and they could fix it and it all could happen in the same day. And it was a beautiful experience. We actually talked about right to repair on the electronic side while I was sitting in their lobby. Um, but we don't have that ability to do it. Instead, our team is like, well, darn, if we could just get this laptop screen, we could repair this laptop and be able to sell it into the community and support that and take the funding and invest it into our job training program. So um, the other piece is, um, it's sort of a funny question sometimes when people are like, why are you so outspoken about right to repair? If people repaired all their stuff, wouldn't it put you out of business? And <laughs> we I get the same question. Of that day. <laughs> I would love that to happen. Like we could certainly go find a different business model, um, but we are so far away from running out of electronics. It's the fastest growing waste stream in the world. There's not a concern from my seat about if people start repairing their own stuff or that they can more easily access independent repair, we're still going to see this stuff coming through our doors. And so because of that, we have an obligation to our community. We have an obligation to my three and a half year old niece who's going to grow up in this world. We need to be protecting our, our materials and creating a world that we can all live in. So, Minnesota is one of the first states that we started doing uh, right to repair legislation, and we've been at it. How long has it been? Is it four or five years? Five, five years. Four or five, yeah, five. Yeah. I think it was 2014. Wow. Yeah. And so, yeah, feels like you, you're at, you know, you're making so much momentum, it's happening so fast, and, and we're like, we. It's been a while. Yeah, I mean, so so what has it been like? I mean, because we've had right to repair introduced in Minnesota and die in Minnesota, well, four times now, and this is going to be the fifth year. What's it? What's it? That roller coaster been like for you? Well, I'm learning a lot about perseverance. Um, I've also learned that my education of Schoolhouse Rock on how a bill becomes a law might have simplified things a bit. But it's also somewhat humorous when individuals that have been involved in different um, product stewardship programs here in the state of Minnesota say five years. Oh, that's not very long. And I think, okay, apparently I still have some (laughs) lessons to learn about perseverance. But uh, it continues to feel like this, um, like the teeny tiny tech dumps, which we're not that teeny tiny, but we are in compared to Apple. And we are in comparison to the Consumer Electronics Association and just these behemoth organizations. And so um, sometimes it feels a little humbling of like, goodness, like they really know how to make a legal argument. But at the same time, we know how to talk about our actual day-to-day experience. And there's so many myths that get thrown out and Um, I think that I can tell that it's been five years of involvement because at the hearing last week, I had to like hold on to my chair rather than just like going down and trying to testify again and be like, everything they just said was bogus. Like, don't (laughs) believe them. Can you Um, tell us a little bit more about that hearing? We're trying to, you know, motivate people to talk to their state reps, just share their repair stories because we all have them. And the more stories that get shared, the more, you know, important it is to, I mean, to everybody in the value there. What was a hearing like? What's, what's it like talking with your, um, your state reps and being involved in that process? One of the most beautiful parts of talking with my state rep or any state rep is realizing that they're just a normal person. Um, So for as intimidating as it may have seemed early on to talk with them or maybe for an individual watching, when they think about calling their state rep, they may feel intimidated. They're just another human like any of us. 
Um, and I think the thing that's really exciting is that almost every person has had some sort of repair experience. And so they can really relate to the fact of like, man, it's hard to get your screen repaired or it's insane that you would have such an expensive repair for a flat panel TV. Like that just doesn't make any sense. Um, so there's a lot of representatives specifically at last week's um, commerce hearing that they share their own repair stories, which most of them shared a, a frustrating story with the, the current system. Um, but one of the other pieces that really popped up, and I think that this is very true to like Minnesota roots, is sort of this can-do, like, well, why would we need to go somewhere else when we could repair our own stuff? Um, there's just a really great, and I'm originally from Indiana, so I get to observe this as an outsider, <laughs> but it's this really beautiful um perspective of like we've got the resources we need we just need the system to get to get out of the way um and then of course there's still the trade associations and very fancy lobbyists that are there um last week though they threw out an argument that i thought was uh unique i haven't heard in any other in any of our other four or five rounds let's hear it yeah Um, was it they said that Part of why Minnesota shouldn't pass this legislation is that because so many other states had drafted it and not passed it, it just didn't make sense for us to pass it in Minnesota. <laughs> well, they're not doing it, so I should. Yeah, exactly. This is the worst logic. And if anything, I feel like makes Minnesotans be like, oh, no, we'll show you and pass this before anybody yeah, else. Because you can put together a fancy legal argument or whatever, but really when the people are listening, they're going to, and, and other people are going to relate to those real stories. And that's just like exactly. silly excuses are going to come out of nowhere when you're combating like what people are going through in their daily life. That's just... I think that shows they're getting cocky. They know they beat you four years in a row, and they're saying, hey, fifth yeah. year is no, no big deal. So what's different exactly. about this last hearing? I know it's passed through two committees, and it's on yeah, the Yeah, this is the farthest we we've gotten so far, right, in Minnesota? Yeah. Yep. So, so now we're at a point of needing a House vote, which means that ideally all Minnesotans that care about right to repair would call their state representatives, and ideally call and not email or send letters calling does continue to be the most impactful step people can take. But letting their representatives know that we want to have a House vote on this. So that's the next step. Um, And there's a lot going on in Minnesota. I think there's a lot going on in all state legislatures this session. But um, specifically letting representatives know that this is still a really big issue. And it has an environmental impact, it has a job creation impact, it has a digital divide impact. There's so many elements to this bill. And um, I really believe that when voters call and their representatives that they listen. And so that's what we all need to do. And I know on the repair.org site, we made it really easy just to call and I mean, it's like yeah. Yeah. dial it for you and you're right. and you're good to go. So you don't even yeah, have to. Yeah, so Minnesota.repair.org or Oregon.repair.org, whatever state you're in, we've got we've got the prompt up. Uh, make it really easy to reach out. Yeah. And now I, going back to like what David was saying about how this is like, we can kind of control this change in a sense. So while manufacturers make it, um, you know, push us into upgrades or make it difficult for us to repair these things. Like we don't have to upgrade these things. We don't have to buy the stuffed animal that also has, uh, you know, an electronic in it for our kid and and to make um, those kinds of choices. So this is definitely a problem of the people that the people can solve. And we always say it's a bipartisan issue there. You know, there are just, there are so many issues um, that our state reps have to deal with that. Like these personal stories are what makes all the other, you know, legal mumbo jumbo just seem um, less important. So, I think the personal stories for all that is just really important. 
Yeah. What's been, I mean, the thing that I think is hard to convey, unless you've been in an electronics recycler, is just how many different things come in every day. Like, if you got 10 laptops in today, are they going to be 10 different models of laptop? Uh, yeah, chances are that none of them would match. <laughs> and, right, and, and, and so that's the, the the real challenge. And I think, you know, when Apple fights against right to repair, all of their arguments have to do with their products. And they say, well, we don't really care if you pass it for everybody else's. But the problem is the diversity of products that are in the market that supersedes any one manufacturer. What, what any given company is doing maybe isn't that bad, but then you add it all together in the whole, and you have this incredible mosaic patchwork of thousands of kinds of things without a, a system for dealing with that. And they want to protect their own, you know, intellectual property, whatever, but at the cost of every single other electronic that needs to be fixed ever. And that's why, you know, although they have all this weight, it's just it's just right. terrible. <laughs> they're not there to, you know, stop everybody. It's just they're, they're, they're just to protect their specific device. They're not there for all everything else. So I'd be curious. Exactly. And I think, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. There's one other piece as a recycler that I think that we see a little differently than maybe a typical repair shop. And that's when we are doing manual disassembly because there is no market left. So let's say it's a Windows 95 computer that came in. Um, We have to take it apart. And if we can't take it apart, the only option is for it to go through a shredding process. And then in that shredding process, you're losing some of the ability to reclaim. If you think of like a piece of paper, you can only tear it so many times and so um when it's hard to come up with an example other than our friends at at apple but um when you think of like a desktop computer that comes in that's needing recycling uh it can take like 40 minutes to take apart the device versus maybe like a dell that comes in and it takes four minutes um and so proprietary screws if you don't have the right screwdriver and you can't something apart, um, then the only option is shredding. And so there's this piece of even if it's not repair, there's still a way to recycle in a more um, environmentally friendly way uh, as well. So I just wanted to add that in there on, on the recycle side that might be a little bit of a different angle than Shops. Right. Well, and you have to get information in a consistent format from all manufacturers. You can't take the time to go and look up, you know, you got 10 exactly. different laptops, you got to process quickly. And if you want to improve yeah. the recycling process, you need to know how to disassemble these electronics to come up with a system that works better. But, you know, recycling is a tough process for these electronics because it just, we don't know, there's not one easy way to get into everything. Right. And so, exactly. yeah, availability of information, we need all more right. info. Yeah. One of the arguments that the manufacturers keep making is they say, well, well, look, why don't you just get authorized, your local repair shop, you're fixing Samsung phones, why don't you just get, get certified with Samsung? Uh, what would it look like for you? Let, let's say it was possible to get authorized mm-hmm. by Samsung or Toshiba. Would, would that be helpful to you? We pursue it. I mean, I'll admit that maybe I'm getting a little jaded after five years, but... Um, it's just so unlikely of anybody getting approved that it doesn't it doesn't feel uh, like a scenario. But um, and we're a Microsoft registered refurbisher. We're third party certified for a recycling process. Like we believe in in these certifications, but um, it just it feels like a band aid. I guess is a way of putting it, of rather than truly what the the system needs to to function in the in the best way possible for the community. 
So let's say I wave my magic wand and all of a sudden there is a process for you to go through with every manufacturer to get authorized. How many different manufacturers do you think you would have to work with? <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, I mean, for the variety of stuff that we take in, it feels like tens of thousands, but maybe I'm exaggerating. But I mean, to even think about all the private label electronics, like right. we clearly during this conversation, we've talked Apple and Samsung. We haven't talked about our dear friends down the road in Minnesota at Best you Buy. Got, and, and they've got their insignia brand TVs, right? right. Mm-hmm. Or Target and the items that they're creating under their private labels. I mean, there's there's just so much stuff. And if e-waste, and we know e-waste truly is the fastest growing waste stream in the world, it's just, it's going to be exponential and, and would be impossible um, to keep up with all of them. And I do, I do want to say that progress would still be good, though. Like, I would still be excited to see something, but... Um, but the scale makes yeah. it makes it challenging, and, and that, that's why you you want just one universal framework. You know, in California, we have the Bureau of Appliance and Electronics Repair, and and repair shops register and they pay I think fifty dollars to the state to register, and then the state is is managing that. And I think you know some program like that where you register once rather than having to register a hundred times maybe would be better. Uh, but the manufacturers haven't seemed interested in that. They just want to completely maintain control over, over their products. Yeah. So yeah, another question for you. Apple has said that you know they're really good at recycling their own products and to the point where they have uh, made these fancy robots. They've made Liam and Daisy uh, that uh-huh. are recycling their products. You're an electronics recycler. Uh, how, how good a job do you think Daisy is Is that doing? how it works? You just hold it and then you just rip it off and you just rip all the components apart and it's done, right? That's exactly <laughs> how it works. Um <laughs> Well, I mean, there are a few elements to this. One, I really am amazed at the quality of their marketing team. I mean, the brilliant press coverage that they've had, that they figured out how to disassemble the phone that they created. I think I had to walk a few laps in our warehouse the day that Liam was first revealed because I was just so frustrated. Um, I also, I mean, I have an accounting background. I love math, and mathematically speaking, Liam and Daisy aren't going to cut it. And so it's just so, it's so frustrating to see. But um, I mean, it it is really interesting, as I've um, shared with a couple of uh, universities, as we're talking about sustainability and specifically, like, what's the role of business um, in sustainability movements? And their perception of Apple is that they're very um, environmentally friendly. Um, Sometimes they're referring to the commitment around um, 100% recycled materials that are in it. And so I can just tell that um, that there's a lot of power behind that marketing force. And so, I mean, it, it is really impressive, but it's also um, really sad to watch the video where I think it was Earth Day when they released it and Liam and Siri are like going back and forth. And then Liam takes apart the Siri phone and, and it's so sad. And our team, of course, is like, if Siri's working, there's no reason they should have just manually <laughs> taken apart that phone. Wasteful, wasteful. <laughs> exactly, but we might be the oddballs uh, when we when we watch those videos. But, but I, I think you're right with the marketing. You watch that commercial and you think that there's a million of these things out there. There's facilities yeah. full of them. They're taking part. Every time I upgrade or, you know, t- turn in my phone for it to be, you know, refurbished you yeah. know, to the manufacturer, like, that's what's happening. And it's just like, no, there's only, well, now there's only one. I don't even think Liam's is Daisy, even working. Daisy, is there or, only the one Daisy? I think Daisy's the only one that's working right now. Yeah, I think they, I think they took apart Liam. I don't know if Daisy yeah. took apart Liam, but I don't think Liam exists anymore. <laughs> exactly. Oh, yeah. yeah, but also the piece of like 
you would imagine that the organization that designed and built the item would already know how to take it back apart and that we as a society wouldn't celebrate that like years of research went into creating this process. Like they should be designing with the end of life in mind. And it's so much about the user experience with Apple and like the touch and the feel and the things. It's like, well, what about the user experience like when it breaks? So this kind of even goes back to robot dog toys and people getting really attached to their electronics. You know, manufacturers you know, are all about, they're just not, not focused on end of life or you know, right. when, when life happens to these things, when you get a piece of sand under your keyboard you know, key, when you, you know, that just right, they're not thinking about it. And I, I kind of put that um, responsibility back on the manufacturers. If you're creating a product that you're going to introduce into the world and it's going to create waste at some point, I mean, you're, you know, responsible for at least making it easier for people to, you know, recycle that product. And a lot of, some companies do take backs, so they do device take backs or, you know, the trade-in and that kind of thing. And that helps, but that's just a fraction of of everything that we need. Have any manufacturers ever reached out to you and said, hey, can we help you recycle our products? Never went. There was one manufacturer that reached out and asked if we were receiving their products for recycling because they were supposed to just come straight back to the manufacturer. And so then I used that opportunity to talk about right to repair and circular economy principles. But um, it just, yeah, it doesn't seem like they, they being the manufacturers, really invest the time at all to, to figure out how to improve on that element. And some of that needs to come from consumers to say, we want products that are built to last that we can repair and that think about end of life yeah. at the beginning. Or if you're going to sell me a tablet, you know, on Black Friday that's only going to last me a year or two months, then I want to be able to ship it back to you for free so you can recycle it because, you know, if we don't have a tech dump or a big you know, you know, recycling facility near us. And some people, I mean, there isn't even a Best Buy nearby where you can drop e-waste at, but um, there needs to be like a resource <laughs> there yeah. to, to, so people can at least get rid of the stuff and not feel guilty holding on to it forever and coming back in, you know, long after they needed to, to get to recycle it. Damn. Exactly. It, it, I get the impression from Apple and other manufacturers that they say, well, everybody should just send their stuff back to us and we'll take care of it. Uh, do you think that's viable? I think that they have an economic incentive to recycle items that likely could be refurbished and resold. Um, so on that piece... So you're, I, you're saying they might be wanting to shred things prematurely to get them off the market so people buy something of, new? Of course. Yeah, of course they would. Shredded that's a, I mean, it, would, it would sure be great to prove that. You, you always sort of suspect something like that's <laughs> going on. Back out. Oh, man. Somehow I don't feel like they would probably invite me into their facility at this point. <laughs> I will admit that the day after our Judiciary Committee, my beloved iPhone 5S that we've already talked about, um, started running a little slower. And I was like, <laughs> no. no. <laughs> um, They've got yeah. this really so again. <laughs> I think the take-back programs are a step, and so I don't want to sound negative about them, but they're not as great as they sound. I mean, there really is that that um, economic incentive for Apple or others to not necessarily prioritize best use from an environmental side um and they just don't have the systems to handle it i would think they're like yeah sure you know we want we're going to tell people to send their stuff back to us but we know that people probably aren't going to do it so we only have to handle you know x amount of returns but if everybody really did you know turn their stuff in they'd be totally overwhelmed and then and then where does that stuff end up if they're not partnering with you know tech dump or something similar to like do a buyback and recycling program then what do what do they do with it where are they you know where are they sending it and i don't maybe they've thought of that but it doesn't seem like it (laughs) 
Oh man. Well, this is then. Thank you so much for your time. We're getting close um, yeah. to our time here. Yeah. Let's let's talk through the Minnesota. legislation that's that's yeah. out pending right now. So Minnesota is yeah. active right now. If you're listening, you absolutely should pick up the phone and call your legislator right now. There is the opportunity to move, particularly in the House of Representatives, in, in, in any day now, right? Yeah. They're, we're just waiting for the House vote. Yeah. So uh, if you're if you're calling, I mean, ask tell your legislator you want them to vote for it. Uh, if you're talking with a member of leadership, and you can look up the, the House leadership on the Minnesota Legislature website, ask them to schedule the vote. Uh, is uh, and then uh, across the country, we have bills moving all over the place. We've got bills in in uh, in Massachusetts, in New York, in New Hampshire. In Washington, Oregon, there's going to be a California bill soon, I think. Um, We've got, I mean, there's a lot of activity happening right now. Yeah, but Minnesota seems to be the one that needs the most help this, for right, right now. Right this moment, uh, yeah, Minnesota call, call, is, call. is in the lead right now. So absolutely call, tell your friends. If you know anybody, if you have any family members in Minnesota, call them and tell them to reach out to the reps. All it takes is five or ten calls to a legislator for this issue to get on the radar. They'll do the research mm-hmm. and they'll realize that the corporations are trying to pull one over on them. That's sweet. Any, any final words of, of optimism, Amanda? What do you think? Where are we going to be uh, five years from now? In five years, I think we're going to have a beautiful, scalable repair parts and manual system. I think manufacturers will go on the record and say, you know, we fought that for so long. We should have just looked at Patagonia and realized that there was a market here and we could continue to build our business and all of this will be funny. And... The world will be better, and that's, that's the optimism I'm choosing I like for today, at least. Yeah, well, that's the kind of you know world I want to leave for my kids, right? Is yeah, is like, hey, you know, there was there was a dark period where you couldn't fix things, and we fixed that. Yeah, we're part exactly. of it. Awesome! Thanks so much for joining us, Amanda. Thanks everybody for Thanks tuning for in yeah. uh, to this episode of Repair Radio. We will be back in two weeks. Yeah, and we'll post all the audio on all the podcast apps, and have all the links in the descriptions updated soon. So, thanks. Thanks everybody.